Hallelujah. Father, we pray as we open your scriptures today that you would open our hearts to receive them. We thank you, Lord, that we have this artifact of your love for us and the record of your word revealed through the ages of ancient history all the way through today. And we recognize all the while you, the author and finisher of all events and our faith, have ordained from the beginning and before time your purposes to be accomplished to the praise of your greatness, Lord, in all the earth. We pray this morning that you would give us, through the proclamation of your word, a heavenly perspective that we would be able to see from your vantage point the purpose for which we have been called, Lord, and the purposes that you are accomplishing through your will and through your might and through your church advancing even in our day. Lord, I pray as we read of saints of old in our passages this morning that you would remind us that we have the same Father and the same Savior, the same Sovereign, the same family because of Christ and the work of adoption and His sanctifying and atoning blood that has purchased for us adoption and inclusion into the purposes of God and the family of God for all time. As your word is proclaimed, I pray that it would be done so, Lord, accurately divided in wisdom and truth, and that you would change us into the image of Christ as we hear it. We pray that the lost would be drawn to salvation, repentance, and faith as they see the standard of righteousness proclaimed in your word. Lord, I pray that through the means of grace in this service today, that you would equip us to be faithful to the call, to glorify you, and to walk in the footsteps that you've prepared in advance for us to the praise of Christ our Lord, our Sovereign and Savior. We exalt his holy name this day. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning we have the privilege of opening the scriptures together to behold God's holy word. This is the third Sunday of the month. We turn back to our Genesis series and encourage you to turn with me to Genesis 45. As we open a new chapter, there's a turn of events in the account of Joseph and his brothers. This is where the eyes of the brothers are open to realize that their brother they'd sold into slavery some 22 years prior is standing before them as second in command of Egypt. And now they're answering to a man who holds their life in his hands, not just in that he is in charge of the stores for famine, provision, but also he has the ability and the authority to do as he wills with his brothers who had betrayed him and abused him so years before. No doubt they are afraid of and just in shock at this reality as their eyes are open to realize uh, their brother Joseph now is a ruler of this great empire. But Joseph surprisingly does not respond the way they might have or any of us would in our sin, but instead governed and directed by the word of God and the truths that have been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He extends grace to the family, the covenant family, and also provisions. And through this, the purposes of God continue in surprising ways in spite of the hardships, both of human sin and also the privation that has come through famine on the land. So you remember, the re- by way of review, Genesis 44 has included a touching moment where we see the heart change in the brothers, among them Judah as a representative as he intercedes for the uh, livelihood of their youngest brother, Benjamin. Benjamin was facing the threat of being enslaved and being left in Egypt because he had been framed with the stealing of Joseph's goblet. Judah offers himself in exchange for his brother. And during his speech, he recounts what God has done and how they have interacted as he makes his great appeal. This is a tender moment indeed. And it gets to the point where Joseph cannot stand to hide his identity from his brothers anymore. Overcome with emotion and love for his family, he reveals himself in Genesis 45. This morning, the aim of this message is to behold the providence of God and the ministry of Joseph, which includes his rulership over Egypt. I have an interesting title. It comes from our text. It's Father to Pharaoh. Joseph describes himself as a father to Pharaoh in verse 8 of our passage. So let's explore more of what that means today. In preparation for the preaching of God's word, as you're able and out of reverence, would you stand for the reading of the same? 
Today we're in Genesis 45, and let us consider God's immutable, inherent, or in, in, uh, errant and infallible scriptures, Genesis 45, 1 through 11. Here is the word of God. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. Verse 10, You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. There are yet five years of famine to come. Say so you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This is one of those moments, highlights in the text, where we see the suspense building, and finally, this moment of revelation and the overflow of emotion that's connected to the uh, events and the relationship between Joseph and his brothers as we see the reunification of the covenant family here, which will continue in the coming days and months. Central themes of the Joseph narrative are prominently featured in Genesis 45 in our text today. And if we add up the years, we remember at 17, Joseph was sold into slavery. It was 30 years of age when he assumed the throne, followed, or second in command at least, followed by seven years of plenty and uh, two years of famine added up. And he's 39 years old at the time that our chapter opens. Joseph is able to clearly see the precise and sovereign handiwork that has ordered his life circumstances for the higher good and for the glory of God. And he testifies to these things. Suspense has been building in the account in this story toward this moment of resolution, of redemption, and reconciliation. Resolution. Why have these events happened? Redemption. God's mercy extended and saving in spite of the difficulties and hardship, reconciliation, family relationships being restored and repaired. We've remarked that one of the great themes of Joseph's testimony in his story is messianic ascendancy, if you will, rising to rule to save. And this messianic ascendancy of Joseph, of course, prefigures the rising to rule and save of Jesus Christ. He himself was also thrown in a pit. He was unjustly condemned and killed, in fact, that pit was a grave that held him for three short days. But when he rose from the dead, he rose not only to uh, resurrection life, but later ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now rules. And in his rule and reign before the right hand of the Father, he provides for us provision for eternal life, the famine of the soul and the tragedy of sin and the horrific consequences of the same are mediated through Jesus Christ, the messianic or the Messiah ascended. So messianic ascendancy of Joseph is now revealed to his brothers along with its purpose, the providence of God. And the providence of God, God as the superintending engineer of all human action and reality is powerfully displayed in this narrative. God in his providence, he superintends everything. He's the great engineer of all human action, all reality. And there are moments like this Details in the text with, which illustrate this with great power. The story of Joseph and his years all the way through the end of the book of Genesis do exactly this. The theology of Joseph's testimony reappears in chapter 50, verses 19 through 21. 
And I'll just give you a precursor to the end of the book where these great themes resurface. Verse 19 of the final chapter of the book, Joseph said to them, again speaking to his brothers, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So this was the testimony of Joseph toward his brothers that endured and is revealed in Genesis 45. Now this, uh, power, this powerful testimony, the theology of Joseph's account and confession here is not only resurf- doesn't only resurface in Genesis 50, but also in the New Testament. Without time to turn there today, you might mark for future study the great account of redemptive history that Stephen preaches before he is martyred. In Acts 7, 9 through 14, he remarks on the sovereignty of God preserving a remnant through the called one, Joseph. Stephen preaches his great martyr sermon on redemptive history, remarking on events that are transpiring even in our chapter today. So the question then arises, why did God ordain, decree? Why did he order the trying and dramatic events of Joseph's storied biography? This is that great why question that oftentimes plagues us. Why so difficult are my circumstances? Why am I going through this valley? Why the trials? Why this suffering that God has ordered in this life? Well, a lot of times this why question is not answered so clearly in the moments when we wish it was. But this is an exception in our text today. The why question is answered emphatically in chapter 45. And certainly the answer was never so clear as it was in this moment during those 39 prior years of Joseph's life. Then he had to take that why question by faith that God had a purpose. But now in Genesis 45, faith gives way to fulfillment as the events, the events of Genesis continue to unfold. So why was Joseph ascended or why did he go through this whole ordeal in order to take the throne? He himself gives three reasons, and that will be the framework of the remainder of our message under this heading. Joseph's ruler calling according to three purpose statements in our text. So Joseph, his ruler calling, what was the purpose of his leadership of Egypt? Number one, to preserve life. Number two, to preserve a remnant. And number three, to rule Egypt. Joseph draws attention to those three purposes. To preserve life, to preserve a remnant, and to rule Egypt, God has appointed him as second in command of this great empire. Number one, to preserve life. Genesis 45, 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. He said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Kids, who is Joseph's father? Remind us. Jacob, that's correct. I heard an answer from the front row. Thank you. So Joseph is inquiring as to the welfare of his father, of his brothers. His brothers can't answer, though, because they're so taken aback and shocked at this revelation. His brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph is overjoyed, and the love and the, uh, this, the feelings of affection for his family are overflowing, and he can't hold back his tears. But his brothers have the opposite reaction, because instantly they realize the consequences of what they have done they may have to answer for now. You mean the brother that we sold into slavery to those marauding band of Ishmaelites 22 years ago now holds our lives in his hands? There's nothing more terrifying for them, for them in the moment than this realization. So Joseph, recognizing this in verse 4, he says to his brothers, Come near to me, please. So they come near and he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And then verse 5, he consoles them. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph has the unique ability because of his theological understanding of who God is and why God has appointed the trials in his life to rise above these feelings of victimhood and the feelings of trauma 
and to be able to see things from the perspective that sets him free from what would otherwise hold him in sinful resentment, anger, vengeance, bitterness, you name it. There is an incredible testimony in Joseph's life of the healing power and, if you will, the therapeutic value, if you want to use a modern buzzword, of what is true about God. Most people suffer their mental health crises and they can't get over the difficulties of their past even when they have been legitimately wronged and abused because we in our short-sighted sinfulness have a painful inability and a self-defeating inability to rise above the immediate sense of I'm the victim of something to see God's purposes in and through it. How is Joseph able to extend this kind of love? And how is this overflowing affection for his brothers a reality and a genuine one, given what they have done to him over the years? It's because he recognizes that God has a pur- had a purpose all along. And now he sees clearly that this purpose is revealed in his calling to preserve life. This is a gospel perspective that Joseph is privy to. What is providence? Often, if you read or study or listen to a sermon from the life of Joseph, um, someone who is aware of what is being taught and illustrated there will bring up the doctrine of God's providence. I'll give you a quote that I love from the London Baptist Confession, 1689. This is chapter 5, paragraph 1. This, by, way is a, by the way, is a composite definition. The way a solid confession is ordered usually is a number of proof texts or different featured texts through the Bible are consulted and then from those, a sort of uh, bit, uh, the different bits and pieces of revelation is compiled to reveal something of a teaching or a truth of who God is. And this is what the LBC 1689 says of God's providence, of divine providence. Quote, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Do we not see all of those attributes of God's holy character evident in the story of Joseph and his brothers? Do we not see the Lord's wisdom, His power, His justice, His infinite goodness and mercy on display? It's amazing to see how the purpose of Joseph's life and great difficulties now comes to fruition and is more obvious in light of God's purposes to save the covenant family. Joseph had a faith that was rooted in divine providence, if you will. While he may have not been familiar with that term, he certainly was of the concept. The, I, the knowledge that God was sovereign and had ordained the circumstances of his life for a greater and glorious purpose reinforced his frame of mind with life-affirming instruments that ran heart deep. Joseph emphasizes in our text three times, it is not you that sent me here, but God. It's very interesting. God sent me here before you to preserve life, verse 5. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant, verse 7. It is not you who sent me here, verse 8, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh. Joseph is not denying that there is human agency or that the will of his brothers was not involved, but what he is acknowledging is what is true of providence. Ultimately, God's purposes are ordered through the use of means. God uses the decisions, yea, even sinful ones, of creatures, humans, to accomplish his greater good. This is what Joseph is acknowledging. And this is an instrument of life. So Joseph had these storehouses that he had accumulated based on God's wisdom and his word to uh, supply provisions throughout the course of the famine. But But that would not be enough resources for Joseph to effectively preserve the most important aspects of life during this time. That is to say, all of Egypt could be slaughtered in this famine, and it wouldn't make much consequence as to redemptive history. But if the line of the Messiah was threatened, 
then the future Jesus Christ could not come according to the promise. That is to say, the most important life-saving measures, if you will, that Joseph embarked upon was to save his brothers, one of them, Judah, who would eventually bear the line of the, or the son of the son of the son who would be Jesus Christ eventually. So the instrument for life-saving that was necessary in this case was the gospel. If Joseph did not have a storehouse of forgiveness, then he would not have been, he would not have been as likely to extend life-saving measures to his family. If Joseph did not have in his storehouses, in his heart, mercy, then likewise, these events would not have transpired as they did, or grace. Uh, young people, do you know what mercy and grace means? Does anyone know what mercy is? So I'm going to give you a definition. You tell me if this is mercy or grace. So when we don't get what we deserve, is that mercy or grace? We'll quote from a Newsboys song. You guys remember that one? Some of you older kids in the crowd. When we don't get what we deserve, what is that, kids? Mercy or grace? Uh, close. <laughs> mercy, got it. And then when we get what we don't deserve, when God gives us gifts that we don't deserve, what is that called? Grace. Grace, very good. I remember that song when I was studying, we get what we don't deserve, it's a real good thing. That's a true statement, however simplistic it might appear in the newsboy's take on the matter. So, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Forgiveness is necessary for relational reconciliation and was beautifully pictured here. In verses 14 and 15, we see it evident all the more. Joseph, when he fell down upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, Benjamin wept upon his neck. And listen, 15, he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. What gave Joseph the freedom of soul to extend this kind of unqualified forgiveness to his brothers? Well, there had been a period of testing, and he had seen the Lord work in their heart. But he gave up his right and ability to punish them for what they had done. You see, Joseph was in a place where he could do something about it if he wished for his brother's prior actions against him. But instead of this, he granted them forgiveness. No doubt Joseph was painfully aware of his own sin, and he knew that God had forgiven him. No doubt Joseph, as a man of faith, was operating according to a principle we see in the New Testament, of whom much is forgiven, much is required. In other words, when we keep the perspective that we are not worthy of God's grace and mercy, and that we instead are worthy of his hell, of his hellfire judgments, then it is easier for us to extend forgiveness to others, is it not? I often think of the illustration of a ship sinking, let's say, and someone comes and saves us. And in that moment, we're so glad to be saved, and we're shaking and huddled in this lifeboat with a blanket around us. And in that moment, do we hold resentment to anyone for causing the ship to go down, or is our primary thought, thank you, Lord, for saving me? And now consider that you were in that ship headed for a penal colony because you had committed the crime of murder, and yet you were saved. This is the picture of forgiveness that we have received that ought to motivate us toward thankfulness and overwhelming sense of forgiveness towards others. So Joseph had a gospel perspective that allowed him these resources to preserve life. Mercy, insofar as Joseph was now in a position where he had the power and authority to prosecute his brother's crimes, instead, he did not give them what they deserved, if you will, but he offered to them uh, freedom and granted to them mercy. They were released from, their, as far as he was concerned, their obligation to him as he had extended to them reconciliation and the love of a brother lost and now reunified with the family. Grace grace required and assumed in the purposes of God and the intent of Joseph to provide uh, for the famine survival accommodations. It allows us to understand and appreciate the touching nature of this family reunion. Not only did Joseph release the brothers from their obligation to him in as much as they had committed crimes against him in the past, but he gave them food from the abundance of his storehouses. He gave them more than just a rations to live on to survive this famine, he gave them a place, a whole land, a place where they could graze their flocks, their cattle, Goshen. He provided for them peace through Joseph, the mediator, if you will, in this foreign land. They secured favor 
among strangers, a place, peace, and provisions, food and lodging. So this was Joseph, according to the gospel perspective, operating according to the beauty of forgiveness, mercy, and grace in his calling to preserve life, even the life of the covenant family who had wronged him in the past. Under this, we also see an operating principle of the sanctity of life itself. Life is precious and ought to be preserved. And it is, I submit, the first duty of the magistrate to take this into account. Don't forget, Joseph is a political leader, very powerful and prominent one at that. Turn back with me to Genesis 9 and let us see how the sanctity or the preciousness of life figures into the principle of political or government rule. Genesis 9.1, this is after Noah has landed and he uh, disembarks the ark and he's about to start life over on planet earth. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. That's a restatement of the first commandment. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon the birds, every bird of the heavens, on everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. You shall not eat the flesh of its life, that is, its blood and your lifeblood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. These are principles for social order, if you will. These are governing uh, standards, precepts, statutes that we've talked about prior mess- in prior messages from Psalm 119 that were given in this formative moment to Noah. He says, every beast I will require it, and from every man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. So the preciousness of life, according to its origins, is to be a governing principle for sound leadership. And this was established in God's instructions all the way back in Noah, and in the days of Noah and the Noahic covenant. Joseph modeled this appreciation for the sanctity of life in his rule. He purposed in his famine policies to preserve as many of the Egyptians and all of his family, as many as possible, as many who would come and partake in the storehouses. And what is the ultimate reason for doing this? It's because life is precious. Every life that we are called to have charge over, parents, we think of our children and the great high and holy calling of raising them to know the Lord, protecting their physical life and guarding their spiritual well-being as well. This is a great and a, a great privilege. Why? Because they, like every human being, are made in the image of God. We live in a day and age of great apostasy and rebellion against these forever established truths of the nature of God and the nature of man. The nature of God is he is sovereign. The nature of man is he is dependent upon him. And gloriously, man is unique among the creatures inasmuch as he is made to reflect aspects of God's character. And therefore, it is the job, it is the duty, it is the responsibility of parents and of political leaders to take this into account. This means that as a cardinal principle, The sanctity or the preciousness of life according to the second commandment is to be a governing statute for the magistrate and for the government. Innocence, according to civil law, is to be the first duty of the magistrate to stand for the rights of those who have not, uh, do not deserve to die. If one takes a human life, according to uh, Genesis chapter 9, then his right to life is... Uh, abdicated, and this would be called capital punishment, but the reason the penalty is so stiff is because he has indeed taken one of God's image bearers into his own hands, and unjustly so. So in a day where abortion is celebrated as a human right, the sanctity of life and the responsibility of the magistrate couldn't be more wickedly displayed in what we have sought to do and what we have trampled underfoot. This is an abiding principle that we must return to of civil jurisprudence formally established since the days of Noah and evident in the testimony of godly leaders, including that of Joseph. It's the first duty of the magistrate recognizing the divinely delegated nature of his authority to defend the right uh, to life of the innocent 
according to the second use of the law, that is God's statutes, to govern the affairs and the relationships between men. We are to affirm and to value, or we are affirming the virtue and value of that which is made in the image of God. I've often said it this way when it comes to applications like voting. We're not necessarily called to be single-issue voters, but I would suggest we are called to be cardinal-issue voters. That is to say, the minimal standard of qualified to serve is that a person is committed to the defense of innocent life. So if you support abortion in any way, then you have disqualified yourself from uh, serving according to God's standards of life and the responsibility of the magistrate to defend the same in Genesis 9 and then illustrated in Joseph's testimony in Genesis 45. Now there's an antithesis of this that eventually gives way to illustrate by the negative example what the opposite looks like. In Exodus chapter 1, I wonder if you remember this, in verse 8 we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So this king was not acquainted with Joseph. And by extension, we can assume that he was not acquainted with the law of God, a man filled with the Spirit of God, and with the governing principles that he modeled and demonstrated in his rule in saving and preserving the covenant family and standing for the sanctity of life. Verse 9, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, a python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people work as slaves. And then you remember the instructions that this wicked Pharaoh gave to the midwives as soon as a baby boy is born, he's to be killed. And then instructions went further. The Pharaoh commanded all the people, verse 22, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast them into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So this is the genocide when this, that we see evident by drastic and tragic contrast that is set up uh, later. Or today in our passage, we see the righteous example that stands, and then we see that in contrast to a negative example later that would be revealed in Exodus 1. The genocidal policies of population control through infanticide of the male covenant children was happening under the administration of the Pharaoh at the time when Moses would arrive. These were anti-Joseph and anti-Christ uh, ideals, and these rulers were bringing judgment on themselves and on the nation through their satanic administration. And this is even a forerunner of more policies to come in the future. One thinks of Herod as well. A threat to his throne prophesied to arise out of Bethlehem. Thus he goes on a genocidal infanticide campaign to stamp out every boy under two. So, what is the ruler calling of Joseph? And what is the ruler calling by extension and application of those who would rule according to the statutes of God? It is to preserve life. And this is done most effectively with the gospel perspective in view of God's sovereignly ordering and purposing different offices and responsibilities for us to walk in the gospel reality of forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And also to preserve life and to act in a way in accordance with God's word, acknowledging what he has established, that each individual human being is made in the image of God. Then recognize from the teaching of the scriptures the great judgment, corruption, the fallout, and consequences when these things are disregarded. So this is Joseph's ruler calling according to that first purpose statement. Now let us consider purpose number two. Number one, Joseph was called to preserve life. Number two, he was called to, to the throne to preserve a remnant. We this, see this featured again in verse 7, Genesis 45. Uh, we'll back up to 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. God sent me before you, second purpose, to preserve a remnant, uh, to preserve for you a remnant on earth. This is an important term, remnant. And as far as I know, it's the first mention in Scripture 
The, the remnant refers, uh, there are three aspects that we could perhaps consider related to this notion, this concept of a remnant. Messianic lineage, a prophetic significance, and its end times or eschatological implications. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. This notion of a remnant is related to the messianic lineage, that is the line or the family by which the Messiah would come. The Lord had sent Joseph to Egypt to preserve the remnant line of the Messiah, if you will. The prophets pick up on this reality and they proclaim that through David, his father Jesse, the line has continued. And these moments through the course of the Bible become symbolic of God's purposes to save. And they are the signature of God's sovereignty on history, accomplishing His will to save, preserve for Himself a Messiah and a people. Verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Another analogy. Of course, the stump, it would appear that the life has, has been killed. You know, a tragedy has come and has cut off this plant. But miraculously, life is preserved. So you could see in the time of Joseph, applying this analogy, this famine comes. The family is threatened. And then more threats still. There's great sin and strife in the camp of Jacob. It would appear that the uh, tree of God's purposes and redemption has been cut down and is nothing but a stump. But a shoot will spring forth. Joseph will be sent ahead to preserve life. And later, from the lineage of Judah, uh, and a later son of his, if you will, Jesse, a, another shoot will grow. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Pausing there, we see some of these attributes reflected and anticipated what the Messiah would be in the life, the testimony, the character, and rule of Joseph. But he was just a glimpse by type of what the Messiah, the uh, shoot from the stump of Jesse, would be in the future. Jesus Christ would be the true covenant son, the appointed one who would ascend to rule. And in him and upon him the spirit of the Lord shall rest, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord will be ultimately manifest through him, our King of kings and Lord of lords. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So like Joseph testified in advance of characteristics of the Messiah, he did not take into account a short-sighted view of things, but instead ruled according to a higher purpose and extended, therefore, to his brothers grace and mercy, just like Jesus would extend to us sinners grace and mercy, but he would do so at the great cost of his own sacrifice. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And it goes on this way to describe the rule of the Messiah, that Joseph gave us a glimpse by type or an example but was fulfilled ultimately and is fulfilled even in our day in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain the peace that will eventually be manifest, the ultimate establishment and consummation of the reign, the throne, and the kingdom of the Messiah will be such that, verse 9 continues, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So in the events that were transpiring in Genesis 45, was a preservation of the remnant, the seed and the family line that would eventually blossom into this glorious fulfillment and reality, the messianic lineage. The offspring of the woman through the anointed line would in fact crush the serpent's head. And Joseph was sent before to Egypt to make sure that that seed would not be stamped out or eliminated by famine, sin or otherwise, but that God would preserve the head crusher, Jesus Christ, and his family line even ages and centuries before he came. In the fullness of time, he would come, but he would not be destroyed by famine, and he would not be, nor his line stamped out by sin. But God would sovereignly intervene, and he would send someone to preserve the line, even through the ministry of Joseph, to preserve a remnant. Genesis 3.15, that promise 
that there would come a significant son from the line of the woman, a dominant theme of Genesis, would come to pass. And thus we see, once again, this primary theme of Genesis resurfacing. Though there is great hardship, animosity, and the enemy is always working to stamp out the purposes of God, he will not be successful. The messianic line will be preserved. Redemption history will continue. And even though there are times where it seemed like it was very vulnerable and we were in very close to losing God's purposes to the horror of history, nevertheless, God intervenes sovereignly by his powerful hand to preserve a remnant. Isaiah 11 goes on to give not just the messianic lineage implications, but also the prophetic significance of a remnant preserved. That is to say that in the era of the prophets, the event of Joseph uh, preserving the remnant of his family provides a category to ground the faith and the proclamation of the spiritual leaders of Israel in spite and through hardships of apostasy, judgment, and exile. You see, there was coming future times and dark periods in Israel's history where apostasy, falling away from one's confessed faith, sin rampant in the land, the judgment that they deserve falling upon them and their enemies overtaking and overrunning their cities, and then exile, the people taken and removed to another land. It was the events of Joseph's life that the prophets recognized, established a principle that no matter how dark things get, God will nevertheless preserve a remnant. And this term remnant became synonymous with the elect and the called in spite of all the hardship that God would go to great lengths in his sovereign power to preserve. We see this in this same chapter in Isaiah 11, verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, and from Cush, from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. This term coastlands in the Old Testament refers to the distant, outlying, unlikely, unreachable, practically speaking, regions of human civilization. Cross Lake, Minnesota, where our church is located, could well fall into that category of a coastland. But who are we here gathered in the name of Jesus Christ? We're a remnant. We're part of that number that God has gone to great lengths to assemble for him. He has gone to Assyria, to Egypt and Pathros, these areas that were inhospitable for the people of God. They were their oppressors and they were in exile in these places at different times. Nevertheless, God preserved through the ministry of others a remnant and the testimony of the same. One thinks of Daniel and Jeremiah and that day and age in which he sovereignly preserved his people again in spite of great affliction. Verse 12, Isaiah 11 continues, He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And it goes on this way to describe God's purposes in, his, in gathering his elect. Now this knowledge uh, or this is, uh, principle of preserving a remnant in spite of hardship and sin continues to be a picture and a fixture of redemptive language, promises, and prophecy all through Scripture. And as we continue to move through the pages of the record, we see its fulfillment moving, that everything is moving toward from the days of Joseph to the days of exile to our days and beyond in passages like Revelation 7. Listen to this. We turn to this book, and remember, this is John who's writing, whose eyes are opened to truths beyond his mere human experience of even what God has purposed in the future. In verse 4, he says, I heard the number of the sealed, who are the sealed, those whose salvation has been secured by a sovereign act of God. He describes them in symbolic numeric form as 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Listen, this is the remnant poetically pictured. Verse 5, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. These names you should recognize from our account uh, in Genesis. These are the children of Jacob, the brothers of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. He goes on this way. Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. 
12,000 from each of these were sealed. Verse 9, after this, John speaking again, I looked and behold a great multitude. This is the remnant, the future remnant, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise the Lord. As we see here, in our day, we may feel like a pitiful and oppressed minority, Christians in a hostile land. We may feel, as we read the news, that we can relate to the exile of the era of the prophets or the hardship of the famine times of Joseph. But the Lord raises up in every generation, through his gospel means, a remnant-preserving power. And this is what Joseph represented. This is what the prophets proclaimed. Proclaimed, and this is what John the Revelator sees in the future. This number 12 and 12,000 and 12 tribes, there's poetic symbolic language employed here. 12 is the number of fullness and completion. So there's not like a literal 144,000 people who will be saved, as some cults might teach, but we see even in that text, in context, it in fact is a number too big to count. And thus, this number 12 refers to the fullness of the people of God. It's an exponential, symbolic way of speaking. So this is to build our faith, that in times of great difficulty, the remnant that we represent, if we know Jesus Christ, will be joined by more and more and more from every nook and cranny and the great corners of the earth, from every tribe and nation. God is preserving a remnant. He has raised up his Savior, his sovereign to do so, Jesus Christ, the Joseph to come. And through the message of his gospel, he is calling the lost to their identity in Christ from the far corners of the earth. And we learn this in seed form in Genesis 45. We see it fulfilled all through redemptive history. And we rejoice because if you are in Christ today, you are counted among that remnant. Those among uh, the human beings that God has created, that he has set his love and mercy upon, extended to us, just like Joseph's brothers, forgiveness, mercy, and grace that we did not deserve, paid for by somebody else, Jesus, on our behalf. And we join that great throng then of those preserved to worship and sing the Lord's praises forever. And every time we gather in this place, it's a precursor of that great day and that family reunion to come. The courts of Joseph rung with tears of joy, such that everyone heard this great, uh, this family in this incredible and great moment. Well, there will be one day laughter and joy that will echo through the halls of heaven, reverberate across the universe as the people of God are joined and that great holy reunion ceremony where all the remnant of the people of God will rejoice that they have been preserved from hardship, saved from their sin, and gathered into the courts of the sovereign one in his majestic uh, in where his majestic presence has paved the streets with gold and his glory shines eternally in the new heaven and new earth so this is what joseph's rulership pictures in part and it's a purpose for his calling both symbolically and essentially at the time his ruler calling was according to the purpose of preserving life and preserving a remnant Final point, Joseph was also called to rule Egypt. Back in Genesis 45, Joseph says in verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. Joseph says that part of the reason for his ordeal and his life's journey is that he would arise to rule Egypt. In so doing, he describes his position as a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house. Turn with me to Genesis 17. This was a fulfillment of a promise that had appeared, had been given to Abraham generations prior. 17.1, when Abraham was 99 years old. Again, one of those moments where it seemed as if the remnant would be stamped out. This time, the greatest threat was age. How would a lady and a guy in their late 90s possibly hope to conceive and bear a covenant son? 
Abraham was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make, and I, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. And listen, kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant. In Joseph ascending to rule Egypt, there was a fulfillment of this patriarchal promise. When would it be said of this nomadic tribe with no place, permanent place to lay their head, dwelling in tents their whole life long, now for several generations, we are kings? Well, you might have to wait till Genesis 45, but God's word does not return void. And surely, in this unlikely set of circumstances, his word is fulfilled. Joseph has arisen as a king of Egypt. This was fulfillment to the promises that were made, the covenant promises that were made to Abraham. Then there was, of course, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. Several generations before, God had prophesied this very moment where an unlikely son would ascend to rule, and he would be prince over Egypt, as it were, this great empire. A king had come from Abraham and had assumed the throne. But notice that there was more purposes still, or more promises still. Not only would Abraham's seed be of royal proportions, but also of national proportions. Great nations will come from you. How would this be possible? Even at this time, though Jacob had a lot of kids by any modern metric, 12 plus, Dinah would make 13. Um, that's not necessarily a nation-sized number. But over the next few centuries, in the land of Goshen, the people of God multiply as fulfillment of Genesis 17. And by the time Moses arises to lead the people out of Egypt, they're like, historians figure, a couple million strong. And this all began at this moment, or it was one of those turning points and milestones of this coming to pass. The land, the place of Goshen, the favor in this foreign land, the provision to survive the famine was granted to them, and the people multiplied and grew. And as they did so, this patriarchal succession and this fulfillment of the promise became a reality. Joseph arose to rule Egypt in order that the promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. From this point on, the people of God, ethnically, ethnically preserved, would no longer remain just a handful, just a family-sized clan. But in the next few centuries, they would thrive in the land of Goshen to the tune of millions. Incredible. So secondly, under this, we have this curious phrase I mentioned before entitled this message accordingly, Father to Pharaoh. Genesis 45, verse 8, It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of his house. Lord of his house, we think of the position that Joseph enjoyed in Potiphar's home as well during his first tenure in slavery. Same thing happened because of the character and anointing that was upon him, him being filled with the Spirit of God. The, 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 uh, Potiphar had just enough wisdom to know, if I put my affairs in the charge of this man, I will prosper greatly, and so he did. Therefore, Joseph became Lord of Potiphar's house, a high official in Egypt. Well, of course, he became Lord of the jail, in a sense, when he was in prison. The jailer recognized these unique administrative abilities and the Spirit of God in this man in this uh, domain and this environment, and he began to rule the prison. Well, then the Lord ascends him out of that pit to take second in command of Egypt, and once again, he has been put in charge of all of Pharaoh's house, would include the nation by extension, if you will. He is the Lord of Pharaoh's affairs, and this was one of the purposes for which he ascended to rule Egypt and to be Lord of Pharaoh's house. This implies the highest of integrity and trustworthy moral convictions. Otherwise, he would never have enjoyed this position. Uh, what would, this is good, a good prayer for us today, that every civil leader had a Joseph in his cabinet. We move from this Lord of his house to this language of father to Pharaoh. 
Uh, Joseph, in describing his role and influence in the leadership of Egypt, describes himself as a father to Pharaoh. That is, he is the one who establishes the authority and the influence and the grounds and the wisdom and so forth that Pharaoh grew to rely on more and more and more. Just as children are reliant on their parents and their father in particular for sustenance, so Pharaoh grew more and more and more reliant on Joseph and the wisdom and the spirit of God in him to govern this nation. So he became a father to Pharaoh in this regard. Would that every civil leader had a Joseph in his cabinet or group of advisors. We contrast this relationship of Joseph to Pharaoh which, with what is more common in our day and age. Oftentimes, oftentimes I've lamented the relationship between so-called evangelical leaders and political officers today. Why? Because as far as the politician concerned, this leader, this pastor, this prominent evangelical speaker represents a voting block that he would like to secure, the sort of quid pro quo, right? And then for the evangelical leader, he sees his seat at the table as possibly giving him some influence to advocate for conservative causes or for religious liberties. And this is the relationship that we most often see coming close, or, or the closest we see between the church and ministers of the land. But I submit to you that this falls short. Would that we would have leaders in our day who would rely on the word of God, rightly divided and spoken, rightly uh, applied as a standard and, uh, for uh, justice and rule in our day. We need fathers to, to Pharaoh to arise. That is, individuals who rightly divide the word of God, the word of God itself as the standard and reference for rule. If we do not do this, we will continue to see the fallout of the judgment and the sorrow and the anguish of a people who are self-imploding under the weight of their own depravity. God had lifted Joseph to this point of influence to represent him before kings and people in authority. You may never be called to serve as a counselor to a Joe Biden, the president of this nation, or to be called as a witness before the United Nations on some panel of human rights to give a testimony of what the Bible says, but... You have in your hands the very authority and power and statutes and wisdom to govern and to cause the nations of the earth to thrive if they but adhere to them. Pray that the word of God would return as the standard, the universal norm, as we, as we have been remarking lately, over our nation and all the world, that there would be fathers to Pharaoh, if you will, who would arise. Imagine seeking out legit gospel minister as your chief advisor, the president of the United States. And he together consults with the word of God, with the president, and they formulate positions and policy foreign and domestic with whereas statements drawn from the scriptures, and then be it resolved, a vow and commitment to rule according to the word of God. This is a prayer and vision for repentance, even in areas of rule. Joseph was ruler over all the land. And this was by the appointment of God Almighty. And there was great fruits and blessing and consequences that happened as a result. These fruits included the, uh, the uh, effects of his wisdom, stewardship, and dominion. These, became, these served for us as, a model, as model qualifications for leadership. Moses would extend this minimum standard of trustworthiness, fear of the Lord, and those who ate bribes for those who were called to serve as judges in Exodus 18.21. But long before him, 400 years prior, Joseph's example served as a model to redeem that first commandment and the cultural mandate in this application, even in civil rule, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to subdue the earth, according to Genesis 1.28. His legacy ought to inform applications of godly rule and assist in critically analyzing the rule of our day. But ultimately, as we take all of this into account, of why Joseph arose to the position that he did, his position, I submit, serves as a type of Christ. He, Jesus, is the King of kings who rules his enemies with the rod of iron and saves his people at the cost of his own great suffering. Joseph extend, it would seem, unqualified forgiveness, mercy, and grace to his brothers. But I submit to you, implicit in his testimony is a qualification for this mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Joseph suffered greatly 
in order that his family would be saved. So in this picture, we see that a, a, a type or an example, an illustration of what Jesus would be. Jesus, likewise, the greater Joseph, extends to us forgiveness, mercy, and grace. But he, like Joseph, and ever more so, infinitely more so, suffered greatly in order to extend that to us. Therefore, Jesus, the greater Joseph, has ascended to the throne to rule as he does right now as we speak. As I proclaim to you these truths, Jesus is seated on his sovereign throne, and he has ascended to preserve life and to preserve a remnant and to rule over all the kings of the earth. So long as he has tarried in his judgment, let us pray for opportunity and pray that God would raise up others to draw attention to his kingdom, lest we or other leaders perish in the way. Kiss the son lest he be angry and become one of his remnant. This is the message of Joseph and it provides hope even for us today. Let us pray that that message would reverberate from the pages of scripture across our culture as we transition. Lord, I thank you for the message of hope in Christ that we see prefigured in the count of Joseph. We pray that you would encourage our souls and strengthen our commitment to stand upon the eternal truth of your word, even in the days of a great famine for loving and appreciating, proclaiming the word of the Lord. Today, we thank you because you have preserved us as your remnant. You have saved us. We did not deserve it. But on the cost of the suffering of Jesus, you have extended to us mercy, grace, and forgiveness. I pray that you would equip us with that message to extend it to others in our day. We pray that there would be a revival, Lord, according to the standard of your scripture, and that as your word goes forth, that people would repent and turn from their sin and turn to Christ. Thank you, Jesus. We affirm that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You have conquered our sin. You've risen from the dead. You ever rule and reign. And you are King of kings and Lord of lords over our nation and the world. So we declare our allegiance to you. May you be glorified in this day and seal your words as far as they have been accurately divided upon the hearts of the hearer. And now as we praise you, Lord, be magnified on the lips of your people, your remnant, in Jesus' name.